everyone. I'm Emily Lavender, and this is the Forever Marriage Podcast. Forever Marriage at Lakewood exists to strengthen families by helping couples discover God's design for marriage. guys welcome back to the forever marriage podcast this is season two episode nine Um, so we are going to jump into key three in this episode which is to regard each other's needs as more important than your own so dawn i'm gonna let you kick us off okay i I will be happy to do that um you know this will be this is this is really to me once we've kind of cleared out all of that kind of tough stuff um, this is where the real learning and the foundation begins uh, to be built, uh, is that when we really become sort of a student of our spouse and we, we learn really the, um, just maybe more about them that we didn't know before, you know, a lot of times we are so focused on our own needs and our own desires that we just lose sight of our spouse and what we fell in love with them, um, what were the reasons that drew us together, why we fell in love with them, the the beautiful times that we've shared together, the good things that we've had together, the realities of marriage that are hard will often cloud that out. And so, you know, we want to talk about what it means to to invest in your intimacy and in your relationship and what that looks like. Um, in um, Gail McDonald's book, High Call, High Privilege, she makes a statement that has become important. Um, and she said, uh, untended fires soon die and become a pile of ashes. And what she meant means by that is that, you know, the fire that is between a husband and a wife, and we talked about that fire being in the fireplace, right? Of our sexual intimacy, that that is where it, it's to be in that sacred boundaried place, that it's warm and it's inviting and it's sensual and it's life giving. But it needs to be tended is something that we we are responsible to take care of. And so we have that responsibility to throw a log on the fire every now and again to keep that going. And what that looks like, we're going to be talking about in this episode. Yeah, guys, we believe fully that God designed sexuality is best expressed in the context of marital fidelity through selfless intimacy rather than selfish interactions. You see, God purposed a husband to be tender and affectionate in his pursuit of his wife. And he is the most pleasured, I believe, ladies, by seeing his wife receive pleasure. He derives pleasure from that in their intimacy. And likewise, fellas, a wife is is to be responsive, is keenly aware of her husband's sexual needs and desires. She is to prepare herself emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually for her mate. And one of the things that Dawn and I, we've been talking a lot about this in recent days, is our roles in sexual intimacy with one another is we believe it's to be mutually submissive and mutually honoring of one another. And a passage that challenged me, not just in the context of sexuality, but just more in in the approach to marriage in general, came from Paul's writing to the Philippians. 
And obviously, if you know the context of this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it's not written in the context of marriage or marital sexuality at all, but I believe it highly informs our approach to both. He simply says this in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, could you imagine if that's our approach to marriage generally and our approach to marital sexuality even more specifically is if we regarded our partner's needs as more important than our own? I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 12, verse 10. In the ESV, he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly affection. And then he concludes that passage with outdo one another in showing honor. And really, this is what this key is all about, is us outdoing one another, regarding one another as more important than ourselves. So how do we do that? You and I, you and your spouse, will experience better sex in marriage, we believe, as we embrace the selfless nature of biblical sexuality. As you regard your mate's needs as more important than your own, you'll begin to sense a heightened awareness of the spiritual dimension of marital sex. And we've talked about this in key number one, is that marital sex is, is largely spiritual. If it's just a physical encounter for you, you're really missing the boat. So in this episode, we're going to give you three specific steps or actions you can take to become a student of your spouse. You can add probably a number of things to this, but these are some things that Dawn and I have implemented in our own marriage that have been extremely helpful. So here's the first one, three ways to become a student of your spouse. It's simply this, discover his or her love language. Don't tell them just our process, how we went about the love language. Well, we still use this tool, and it's been in our toolbox for many, many, many years. When we lived in um, in Statesboro, the first you know part of our marriage, when things weren't going so swell between us, um, we still, in, in when we were dating, you know, as a Christian couple and in church, we had determined that we would go to a marriage conference every year, and we we would do that do it even in the most even in the difficult mm-hmm. years we would go, but we fell into that pattern of we would go to the conference. It would be better for two weeks, and then we'd be right back in our our death spiral, and so. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it was. It was, but we just didn't call it a death spiral. I know, in the but early gosh, 90s. that's yeah. what it felt like. So, <laughs> you know, um, one year um, we had not planned. There was no, we didn't have a plan to go to a uh, conference. And I was working at a bank at the time, and one of the girls that worked next to me said, "Hey, we're having a marriage conference at our church in Brooklyn, Georgia." And I don't mm. know. If our listeners know where Brooklyn, Georgia is, but it's a tiny, it was a tiny one caution light town yeah. when we lived down around there. And so 
um, she said, we're having a marriage conference at our church and Dr. Gary Chapman is coming to speak. And I didn't know who Gary Chapman was. I mean, for those of you who, well, you know, we're dating ourselves, ourselves here, but honey. Gary Chapman was married to Amy Grant, not the Dr. Gary Chapman that wrote the love languages, but he was somebody else. Anyway, Google it. You'll, you'll know <laughs> what I'm talking about. So I thought, okay, well, you know, if we can work it out, we had kids and all, you know, we'll, we'll try to come. And so Scott and I went to this little church in Brooklyn and Dr. Gary Chapman was there to teach the love languages, the material, the book had not even come out yet. He was just teaching the material. And for the first time, you know, Scott and I really a light bulb kind of came on to us. This was such a practical tool his concept is that every person has a specific love language, a way that they receive love, a way that they actually feel loved by another. And those five love languages are words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, gifts, and physical touch. So his concept is that each person has one of these and and it's their way of really feeling the love that another person has for them. So as Scott and I sort of processed this, we took the test. My love language is gifts. So obviously I can be bought and doesn't You're take much. shallow <laughs> and maybe, superficial. Maybe I if am. If I've offended I, you, I can buy a gift and you quickly and forget. I'm usually good to go after that. <laughs> so um, I've, I've owned that about myself now. We, we know this about me. Love can't be bought. Well, I should say it this way. My love's love can be bought. <laughs> it, it can. That's right. So, you know, and Scott's love language is acts of service. So if we were to step back and observe, you know, young Scott and Dawn, we, you know, we could see, I mean, Scott would be, you know, he'd be washing the dishes or vacuuming the floor and those types of things. But I'd be sprawled out on the bed upstairs crying because I didn't feel like Scott loved me. And then, you know, in my mind, I'm sitting here thinking. Most women would die to be married to a man who's I hope most women will come line up at the door (laughs) because the first one who's here is going to get him. Um, I, you know, so Scott's love language was quality time, but I, I mean, acts, acts of service. That's right. So when, you know, for me, when it came time to give Scott a gift, like a birthday or whatever, back in the eighties, of course I was out at Belk's buying Mm. Eel skin, skin wallets, wallets and yeah. parachute pants and stuff like that. So, <laughs> can't touch it. Yeah, right. Well, and so, you know, I would be getting that. And when I would give it to Scott, I mean, he might appreciate it, but actually he'd be a little ticked off because of the money that I spent on ching, it. Ching, yeah, ching, that's ching. right. I so, could hear Pink Floyd playing it. Yeah, he just, you know, it. we weren't communicating love in a way that the other person understood it, but we did love each other. So when we understood this about ourselves, we uh, we really quickly grabbed a hold to it and understood the effect that communicating uh, in the way that a partner best receives love is most effective. And I'll be honest with you, as we started to practice these love languages with one another, it certainly raised the temperature between the two of us. It's not a savior for marriage. Again, there's only one savior it didn't it didn't heal our marriage but it certainly helped kind of take out all the inflammation so that we could talk about the difficult things in our marriage we felt like okay we really do love each other we felt each other's love and it made us actually want to work on the broken things in our relationship 
So you may be asking, how do I know? Dawn shared our love languages and how we came about it, but you may be asking, how's the best way to discern my spouse's love language? And let me just give you three questions. This was very helpful for us, gosh, back in the early 90s when we first came across this. First question is simply this. What does my spouse most often request of me? You know, is is that quality time? Is it physical touch? Is it words of affirmation? What is it that they most often request of you? That's going to be a leading indicator. Second question is simply this. How does my spouse most readily express their love to me? Because as, as Dawn said in her illustration earlier, I was downstairs at our home in the late 80s, early 90s. I was washing dishes. I was vacuuming, taking out the trash, doing things that I thought would express love to Dawn. But she felt she I will say this. She probably appreciated that I was doing those things, but it was missing the mark in really uh, communicating love to her that was most meaningful to her. So how does my spouse most readily express love to me? Because we're going to express love to one another primarily in the way that expresses love best to us. And then the third question is simply this. Over the course of our marriage, how have I hurt my spouse the most? That that will determine. Uh, did I say that question right? Over the course of our marriage, how have I hurt my spouse the most? Yes. I think I did say it right. <laughs> I'm looking is at my nose. Is that confusing to you? It is confusing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that what really in, what it looks like is like, okay, so we've established my love language's gifts. And I this is even going to sound more shallow than ever. But like for our first anniversary, Scott gave me a potted plant. And I thought. Do you see any other? Do you see any other plants in this house? Do you know how long I'm going to keep this plant alive? Is that really what you think of me? And then, like our first birthday, my first birthday came. We got married in December, and then my first birthday together was in February. And he gave me a bookmark. A bookmark. Uh, you always Let me say, say it again. that. I, I, I am feel like there had to be something more than a bookmark. There no, wasn't a there book. was. No, there was not. There was a bookmark. Was there a, a really loving note it written had, on the bookmark? It, it was in the shape of a heart on the top, and then the the body of it was um, 1 Corinthians 13, like yeah. the love chapter. I was saying, I love you. Yeah. I tried to save money. Uh-huh, I guess. <laughs> I was like, okay, so... This is what I mean to this man. And so it, it hurt me. But I, but even going deeper, let's say let's say your partner has been especially damaging with their words. Mm. Okay. It's, and so words of affirmation might be something yeah. that might be a love language for you. Yeah. Let's say um, your spouse, you know, prioritizes hobbies or um, time with friends over time with you. Well, quality time might be your love language because that really hurts you when that, when they choose to do other things other than to spend time with you or when they, you know, when they, when your spouse maybe uh, doesn't fill the cart with gas or doesn't do some of the things around the house, it might not be that you just need, you need shared labor help, but really acts of service do communicate a sense of love to you. So, um, you know, or even physical touch when, you know, when physical touch isn't just sexual intimacy, it's also affection, physical affection, like a hug or handholding or 
uh, a wink from across the room or something like that. And so certainly if the lines of abuse are crossed with someone whose love language is physical touch, when when physical abuse happens, that's devastating to them. So when we think about how have I hurt my spouse the most, this is what we're talking about. Thank you for clarifying. You're my welcome. Notes I'm for here me. for you. You are here I'm, for I'm me. I'm here for you. I'm so I'm so glad you are. I know. But if all of this is still uh, a mist to you, uh, Emily will include in our show notes. There's a little quiz that uh, Gary Chapman and the folks at the Five Love Languages have put up, and we'll put that in our show notes. It's a little thirty statement quiz it's basically you respond to statements i i like this or i like this and as you go through th- these different uh, statements it eventually begins ranking what communicates love most to you there so uh the five love languages.com there's a little quiz that we'll include in our show notes so you can take that it's real brief you can assess yourself get your partner to assess themselves and and begin communicating love in ways that best expresses. What we're talking about in this episode is key number three, regarding each other's needs as more important than our own. And so we're talking about here specifically how to become a student of our spouse and three ways to become a student of our spouse. And this first one is simply just learning their love language. Now, with regard to sexual intimacy, another way to become a student of our spouse is determine when he or she is most receptive to sexual intimacy. And there's four questions you can ask in this. Is it when he or she is out of their regular routine and in a special environment? Because one thing that we found, especially in the 90s, as we were raising our three children, Dawn was best prepared for emotional and physical connection with me when we were out of our regular environment, not at home, tended to be when we were on a trip or something like that in a special place, a special time, some type of a special occasion. And that often was a good form of preparation for her. So is it when he or she is out of their regular routine and in a special environment? Another question that you can ask is, does there appear to be a desired frequency on his part? Because rarely do we meet a couple whose desire for frequency of sexual intimacy is the same. More often than not, the wife has a desired frequency, whatever that may be, and the husband has another. And rare is the couple that are equally matched. And here's where we we honor one another. If I have a certain desire of frequency that is different than Dawn's, we can both mutually honor. I can at times acquiesce to what she desires. She can at times acquiesce to what I desire or need. And this goes back to the principle that we talked early on is that sexual intimacy in marriage is about mutual submission and mutual honoring and seeking to outdo one another in honor. So just simply ask yourself this question about your partner. Does there appear to be a desired frequency on his or her part? Another question that you can ask as you're trying to determine when your partner is most receptive to sexual intimacy 
is it when she feels good about herself physically, emotionally, and mentally. And, and guys, let me just say to this, observe your partner in these things. Help her create environments that helps her in that. I can remember in the early 90s when we were living in Statesboro, uh, we had probably had Reese, our second child by then. So this was probably 92, 93. And what I, I knew was helpful for Dawn is for me to make an effort to be at home on certain days by a certain time to take the children and not the language we use is I was fathering my children. I was not providing child care for my children. I was actually fathering them. But building in time, I would come home by a certain time so Dawn could go out and could run because that was helpful for her to just clear her head, help her feel better about herself physically. And that was beneficial for both she and myself. Now, let me say this parenthetically. We never want to do these things for our partner with ulterior motives. If I do this for Dawn, then she's going to do this for me, because that really is getting us into contractual thinking. And covenant marriage is never about contract. If I come home at a certain time, I build time into my schedule and your schedule for you to go run, then I expect tonight, because I've given something for you, you're going to give something for me. And we don't want to get that. That's that's not God-honoring, and it's not spouse-honoring. That's contractual and that's that doesn't tend to be healthy a fourth question that you can ask when you're trying to determine uh, your partner's receptivity to intimacy is is it when he is overly stressed or in need of a physical release i began just observing myself years ago in um in recovery ministry any of you who may be familiar with recovery ministry you'll know that they use the acrostic of HALT. And I began thinking through that acrostic, and usually those that acrostic of HALT helped to for those in recovery ministry, if it was through addictive behaviors, whatever they might be, it was to help them identify triggers for them. Um, and one of the things for me that I began to realize triggers for me uh, was often um, what hots. I called hots. Yeah, thank you, Em, for reminding me. It was when I was hungry, when I was overwhelmed, when I was tired or sexually deprived. Those were triggers for me, often for outbursts of anger or struggles with temptation, whatever it might be. But Dawn began to be a student of me, and she would she could observe there. I can remember numerous times that Dawn, Dawn would observe me by my my countenance, my interactions maybe with her or maybe with the children, and she she could say in a very loving way, honey, we need to be together. And in essence, what she was saying was, I can tell in you physically you need to be with me because I was becoming irritable. And that's where I put the S of hot zone. Uh, I began realizing, okay, I get irritable, I get agitated when there's a physical need to be with Dawn, when I feel is 
Sexual deprivation may be a harsh language, but it was just helpful for me. Men are so simple. I mean, <laughs> this so easy to fix. You're hungry, you're going to feed them. They're overwhelmed, send them outside to play with a the ball. They're tired, you need to go take a nap, go to bed early. You're, you know, you need, you need to be intimate. Okay, we're going to take care of this right now. You know, so and women are not quite that yeah, easy dudes, to fix. Yeah, let me, let me I, just we, tell you. It's not that easy But let me just say something to you ladies. You know, it's a gift. It's a gift that they're so simple to fix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just thank God that we're created oh. that simple. Mm-hmm. There you go. All right, as we wrap up, here, here's the third uh, practice or principle in terms of discerning uh, our, when our spouse is most receptive to intimacy is discern what destroys sexual intimacy for them. For instance, is it when she's concerned the children will interrupt? I know, uh, once again, back when our kids were preschool, elementary age, that that was a big hamper in in our sexual in, not a big hamper, but it we we had to think about it. I had to be thoughtful of it. Of were the children going to interrupt? Were they going to come knocking on the door or something like that? I just had to be mindful of that because that in and of itself could be a deterrent for Dawn. Uh, is it when he feels you're disinterested or indifferent towards intimacy? We're talking about what destroys sexual intimacy for your partner. If he feels that you're disinterested or indifferent towards it, he's he's not going to want to do it because I will just say this, ladies, um, and I, I think I can speak on behalf of most of your men, is your men want to know that you equally desire to be with them as he desires to be with you. And what as I've talked to numerous guys through the years, what I, I have found is if they feel that you're disinterested or lack desire, then they really will become disinterested themselves because they don't want or force, they don't want to force something on you that they feel that you're not wanting yourself. And so just be mindful of that. Um, we're talking about discerning what destroys sexual intimacy for your partner. Is it when she feels the only time you want to be with her is when you have a sexual need? This comes out in when we're working with couples in a marital context in in the assessment that we do in the in the enriching assessment. There's a statement that couples respond to and it's something like this I'm paraphrasing it but it's basically I'm reluctant to show affection to my partner because he or she often interprets it as a sexual advance. And if if a wife will strongly agree with that statement. I'm often reluctant to be affectionate with my partner because he or she will interpret it as a sexual advance. Man, if your wife is reluctant to be affectionate with you because you will interpret it as a sexual advance, that says something. You know, Dome was very helpful and is still very helpful for me with this. If sometimes if we're cuddling in bed and she might would say to me, honey, I just need you to hold me. And basically all she's saying is really what I want and need from you most right now is just close proximity. And I desire mostly just you to hold me. 
and non-sexual touch, not touch that will lead to some form of sexual encounter between us. And that's sometimes we we have to help our our spouses. And Dawn has been very honoring to me to help me with that because I might misinterpret her coming and being close to me as a cue that she was wanting to be intimate with me. But she helps me in that by saying, honey, this is what I need most from you. And this is where we will often bring in Proverbs 3.27. Solomon says there, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. And so in that moment, when Dawn lays her head on my chest and says to me, honey, I just need you to hold me. Was there probably a desire in me to want to be intimate with Dawn? Of course there was. But once again, when we look back at Philippians 2, 3, and 4, I want to regard her needs as more important than my needs. Doesn't mean that I don't have a need to be intimate with her, but let me say this, fellas. I have yet to do a funeral of a man who died from lack of sexual intimacy of, with his wife. I've not met the man. I've never heard a coroner say he died because his wife would not have sex with him. Now, he might he might have died because he was sexually intimate with somebody else. That, that's true, yes. <laughs> yeah, that might be why he's yeah. six feet under. But the point is, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck here, but what I am saying it is helpful. Sometimes it is good for us to regard our partner as more important than ourselves. To That is the Christ life, is a call to come and die to ourself, to regard others as more important than ourselves. And then the final question is this, is it when he feels he's the only one that initiates intimacy? I will, I will say this, this was Scott in his terrible side. Back in the early years, probably two to three years into marriage, um, our intimacy was becoming less and less frequent, and I was becoming more and more frustrated. And I remember at one point just finally saying to Dawn, listen, girl, uh, I'm always ready. I'm not going to initiate anymore. You just let me know when you're ready. And, fellas, as I look back at that, I'm 30-something years past that now. Looking back, I was I was shirking my responsibility as a husband because God has wired us men to be the initiators and has wired our wives to be the responders. You can take this all the way back to Adam and Eve. Does it mean that our wives at times can't initiate intimacy and that we can't respond? But generally speaking, we are wired by God to initiate intimacy with our wives, and our our wives are wired by God to respond to our initiation. And sometimes, ladies, what destroys intimacy for your husband is if he feels that he's the only one that desires it. In our next episode, we're going to get into comparison contrast between husbands and wives, because we're talking about being students of our spouse. What does it look like to be students of our spouse, spouses? And Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, husbands, in the same way, 
live with your wives in an understanding way. And we're going to talk about in our next episode, what does it look like, men, to live with our wives in an understanding way? And this episode really was just about having, and we hope we encourage you to have the discussion of, and of really take an evaluation of how are you tending the fire in your relationship? How are you taking care of it? You know, taking a step back, having some good, honest uh, communication about it will help you to keep those fires burning. Awesome. Thank you all so much and stay tuned for another episode of the Forever Marriage Podcast.